song that uh, Michael and Linda just sang, Captivate Us With Your Presence, um, is uh, something that, uh, a little bit about what we're going to talk about today, because what we do is we have a tendency to substitute things for the presence of God that take the place of God's presence and take the uh, place of God's purposes. And so today we want to continue a series called Superheroes of the Faith, and we're going to look at a man by the name of Samuel. If you've got your Bibles, I want you to turn to uh, the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 4, and then we're also going to cover chapter 7. 1 Samuel, chapter 4. And our uh, series has been based upon a passage found in Hebrews chapter 11 when it talks about the hall of fame of faith. And they list all of these uh, different men and women uh, throughout history that really make the hall of fame of faith. And he says, what more shall I say? For time will fail me to tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David, and Samuel, who we talk about today, and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, and were made strong out of weakness, and became mighty in war, and put foreign armies to flight. Everything in there shows something strong, something victorious. These were the superheroes of faith. And so today I want us to take a look at, at Samuel, one of these superheroes of faith. And if you've got your Bibles to open to 1 Samuel chapter 4, you've really done a great job, but I'm actually going to ask you to look at chapter 3, starting in verse 19. And in verse 19, it gives us a little bit about Samuel as he grew up, and he grew up in the, in, in the house of Eli, who was the priest at that time. And it says in verse 19, And Samuel grew, and the Lord was with him, and he let none of his words fall to the ground. And all Israel, from Dan to Beersheba, from north to south, knew that Samuel was established as a prophet of the Lord. And the Lord appeared again at Shiloh, for the Lord revealed himself to Samuel at Shiloh by the word of the Lord. And when you get to chapter 4, verse 1, and the word of Samuel came to all Israel. So Samuel is this guy that, that they recognized as a prophet. And so they recognized that, uh, that, that God was, was speaking to him and speaking through him. But then you pick up a story, an encounter that takes place in chapter 4, and Samuel's pretty much out of the picture. Samuel's not, uh, not brought into this particular situation. And it says, now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines, and they encamped at Ebenezer, and the Philistines encamped at Aphek. Now, it says they're getting ready to fight the Philistines. We talked about in the last few Sundays about in the book of Judges, it kept telling you that the nation of Israel would turn away from God, and when they would turn away from God, then whenever that would happen, then retribution would happen. Someone would come and they would oppress the people. As they would oppress the people, finally the people would have enough of it, and they would cry out to God and say, oh God, save us, uh, we repent of our sins, and then God would lift up a deliverer to restore them to um, to their to a place of rest, and this would last for a while, and then they would do the same cycle again. Well, throughout the book of Judges, there were nomadic tribes that would come, and they would oppress Israel. They had no desire to take land or, or anything. They didn't want to permanently rule these guys. They were just taking them for everything they could during that time. But the Philistines were different, because the Philistines were people that wanted to take land and expand their kingdom. And they wanted to come in and take the land that the Israelites had. So whenever you begin to pick up uh, and read about the Philistines are attacking them, it's because they want to control them and they want to keep that land. 
And it says there was a battle that was getting ready to take place. And in verse 2 it says, And the Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. So they lost. They fought this battle and they lost. And so the first thing they did is when they lost, they came back. And in verse 3 it says, And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the the Philistines? When all the troops came back and they met with the leaders, here was the question they said. Why did the Lord defeat us? They blamed it on God. They said, why did God defeat us? And uh, as I read that, it reminded me of myself and probably everyone in here. When things go wrong... When defeats happen in life, first thing we say is, God, why'd you do this? And we either believe that God caused it or God could have done a whole lot more to keep it from happening. And so we automatically throw the blame on God. And that's what they did. They say, God, why, why did God do this? Why did God allow us to lose this battle to the Philistines? Well, right away, they're coming at it with, with a bad, um, coming at it from a bad perception. And, and they're putting a blame on God, saying that he must have been the one that caused this to happen. But then they got this bright idea. And it said, let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So they went to Shiloh to bring the Ark of the Covenant. Why didn't we think of this earlier? You see, just what happened is they said, let's go get the Ark of the Covenant and it will save us. Ark of the Covenant, real quick. It's a rectangular box about four feet long. And in this box, it's got gold on top, and it's got two winged creatures called cherubims sitting on top. And as they point, their wings are just about touching. And it was the mercy seat. It was the, where the visible presence of God was to be. And, and whenever they would have this Ark of the Covenant, they were to put it there in a tabernacle and then have it separated with this curtain called the Holy of Holies. And only once a year could the high priest go in there and, and offer sacrifices and go into the presence of God. And if you opened it up, inside there were three items. There were the Ten Commandments, the tablets, the Ten Commandments, to remind them of God's law. There was a pot of manna which is what sustained them for 40 years as they went through the wilderness. God provided them manna every day for them to eat. And the last thing was the staff of Aaron or the rod of Aaron. And Aaron was Moses' brother. And, and he was where the priestly line came from. And there was a story where there was a rebellion taking place and they're trying to figure out who was God's chosen man. And, and God said, whoever rod or staff will bud, that's who I've chosen. And Aaron's did. And it just kind of squelched the rebellion. And so they put that and they placed that in there. And it was always to be a, a reminder of God's power and God's presence and God, how God had helped them and led them through all these times in the wilderness. And so what their thought was, if we could just get the Ark of the Covenant, because it was in Shiloh and we're in another town, if we would bring the Ark of the Covenant, then it will save us. Listen closely to what it said. It will save us. We can bring this Ark of the Covenant. It will save us. And um, Linda was singing about, uh, about how that we want to be captivated by the presence of God. 
What they were really not concerned about being captivated by the presence of God. What they were wanting is to get a almost like a good luck charm, a symbol. And if we could get one of these good luck charms, then we will be okay. And we will substitute this for trusting God. When difficult times come, oftentimes what we will do is say, man, I just got to come to church. If I can check church off, then everything will be okay. I just need to maybe put some money in the offering plate, then everything will be okay. Or maybe I just need to carry my Bible around with me and and that'll be okay. Hey, not an app on the iPad. I want them to see the real book. Uh, Then everything will be okay. You got final exams coming up and so you'll wear that little necklace with a cross on it because then I think everything will be okay. I got a big sales presentation coming up so I'm going to take a Bible and put it on the back of my desk and carry it with me this morning because I really need God to be there for me. And what we do is we put our, our hope and our faith and our trust in these things that are substitutes for a relationship with God. Nothing wrong with coming to church. Nothing wrong with, with giving money to, to uh, church and to other charitable uh, organizations. Nothing wrong with volunteering to serve. Nothing wrong with having your Bible or even wearing a necklace with a cross on it. You just don't put your faith in that rather than put your faith in God. And that's what these people did. Because it was evident as you read through the stories that, that they were not serving God. And so they said, hey, if we just bring the Ark of the Covenant here, then everything will be fine. So just so you can get a picture as to where this is, David, I think we've got a, do we have a map again up here? Do we bring a, put a map up on the screen? And just so you can get an idea of where we are, right here is Aphek and right here is Ebenezer. So we're right there. You see, they're real close. That's where the battle's getting ready to take place. But Shiloh is right over here. And so this is where they've got to go get the um, Ark of the Covenant. So they leave Ebenezer, they go over to Shiloh, and they break the, get the ark, and they're going to bring it back. Now, the Philistines like to take all this area. They love this area, and what they do is they like to take all this area, and then take all this area, and just completely dominate. You got that? So, that's where we're at. And now they've got to go and, uh, and get the Ark of the Covenant. This is it. If we can just get the Ark of the Covenant, just set this box right here, the power of God will be with us, and we will win the battle. So in verse 4, look what it says they do. It says, so the people sent to Shiloh, and they brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who's enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And this is not a good thing. This is not a good thing. We do not have time to talk about uh, Hophni and Phinehas, but they were the sons of Eli, who was the main priest, and they were his sons, and they were also in the priesthood, and they were worthless. Say, Danny, that's cruel. No, the scripture says it. Earlier in 1 Samuel, it says Hophni and Phinehas are worthless men. Chapter 1, verse 12. All right. Uh, Chapter 2, verse 12. They're worthless. And these guys are worthless sons, and so they're there with the Ark of the Covenant. So not only do we think the Ark of the Covenant is some good luck charm, now we've got two of these worthless priests that are hanging out with it. But look what happens. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout so that the earth resounded. Oh my goodness. There was this mighty shout that went up when they saw the Ark of the Covenant. All right, you Old Testament uh, fanatics over here. When you think about people shouting and something good happening, what story do you think about in the Old Testament? Yes, yes, thank you so much. Walls of Jericho. (laughs) If somebody said crossing the Red Sea, I go, no, no, not that. Uh, The walls of Jericho. Because see, what happened is when they first went into the promised land, uh, they, they had this plan, they ran into Jericho, this huge city that they had to get past, 
But they had these huge walls. And so God told, Jer- uh, told Joshua, this is what we'll do. We'll march around uh, each day. And then on the seventh day, we're going to march around seven times. Then you shout and the walls will come down. But in that story, he says, you lead off with the Ark of the Covenant. So they carried the Ark of the Covenant each day. And when it came to the last day, they still had the Ark of the Covenant. Then they shouted, then the walls fell down. We're getting ready to fight a battle against the Philistines. Hey, Ark of the Covenant, bring it on in. They bring in the Ark of the Covenant and everybody shouts. They're getting ready. They are so pumped. And it said that there was this great shout. There was this resounding noise. The word in Hebrew means to mar something, to to mess something up. It's like your eardrums were splitting because of the roar. It's like taking when a touchdown is scored and Jordan Hare, a touchdown is scored and Bryant Denny, and you put the sound of that together. That's what this was like. These people were excited. They were pumped. The Ark of the Covenant is here. And since the Ark of the Covenant is here, we are fired up. And they probably, when it started to come, they're going, Ark, 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 Ark. And then they said, no, no, they had a group over here went, Ark of Covenant, Ark of Covenant. And, oh, they're, they're thrilled. I mean, they are so pumped, and they're such an emotional time. And, you know, I think about that, and every time I've read this story, I, I go back to 1974. And in 1974... I was not really a big hockey watcher. Uh, I was not a spiritual man like Keith, but but I but I got into this one because the Philadelphia Flyers were playing and they were an expansion team since 1967, and no expansion team had ever uh, won the uh, uh, the Stanley Cup. And they're in the finals against against Boston, who who is is just a purebred. Uh, hey, we're going to win it almost every year. And, and it went down to where the Philadelphia Flyers were leading three games to one. There was three games to two. It's the best of seven. And so it's three games to two, and they're going to Philadelphia to play game number six. And they feel if they win game number six, they win the Stanley Cup. If they lose it, they go back to Boston for game seven, and there's probably no way they're going to win that. And so what do they need to do? What do you do to try to get that emotional boost so that you can win that game? They figured it out, and her name was Kate Smith. Kate Smith was a, um, a large woman. No, Kate Smith was a, um, was a woman that had a strong, powerful voice. And she would sing God Bless America. That was her song. And she had sung God Bless America at 40 games that the Flyers had played. And they won 36 of them. 90%. Nine out of every ten times Kate Smith sang, they won. So guess what? Kate, we need you. 17,007 people packed the Philadelphia Spectrum in 1974. And the lights go down, they roll out the red carpet, and all of a sudden a few lights come up, Kate Smith comes walking up. They're getting pumped already. And Kate Smith stands up and she knocks out God bless America. And she hits that loud last note. It is deafening. And the Philadelphia Flyers are pumped. They come right out, score a goal first first period. Man, right on there. It's one to nothing. And it stays that score to the very end. And they win the Stanley Cup, first ever in Philadelphia, one to nothing. They win, and they all go back to what a boost we got from Kate Smith. Well, these guys knew that story because they said, if Kate Smith can do it, Ark of the Covenant can do it. And we will take, <coughs> we will take the Ark of the Covenant, and when we show up in the battle, it's all but done. We got it. We got our good luck charm, Ark of the Covenant. Well, 
Do you think it was working? Oh, yeah. At the beginning, look at this, verse 6. Verse 6 says, in here it says, And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, the Philistines were afraid. It was working. It was working. They were scared. For they said, A God has come into the camp. And then they said, Woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us. Who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. They knew the story. They knew what God had done in the wilderness with all the different plagues. And they did double woes. That's a double woe. It was like, woe. And then a guy said, that's not enough. And a guy says, woe. We are done. We are toast. It is over. The God has showed up. It's all over. They didn't have a Kate Smith, but they must have had like a Newt Rockney. They had a motivational man that stood up among these men, these soldiers. And in verse 9, he says, take courage and be men. Yeah. Oh, Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. We have oppressed these people. They've been our slaves. You don't want to be a slave to them. You're not going to give in to them. So the last thing I'm going to say to you, be men and fight. Man, those guys were so pumped right there. They put their shields together and everything. We're ready. We're tackling them. We're going after them. What a battle. You've got the Israelites coming out here with the Ark of the Covenant. You've got all the Philistines over here, and they're all pumped. and said, we're going to be men. We're going to fight. Enough said. And they come into the battle. And who wins? Okay, next week we'll share. Um, no, who wins? Look at verse 10. It was a slaughter. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and they fled every man to his home. And there was a great, very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers, and the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. Oh, can it get much worse than that? I mean, not only did they lose the battle, they got skunked. And lost 30,000 men, the two priests that were there with him got killed, And then they got the Ark of the Covenant and they captured it. It almost, it really gets worse from there. One of the troops came back and talked to Eli, who were the two priests' dads. It was his dad. And they told him, your two sons have been killed and the Ark has been captured. And when he heard the news, he fell back and died. Hit his head and he died. Doesn't stop there. Phineas, who has a wife who's pregnant with a child, when she hears the news, all of a sudden it causes contractions to begin, and she begins to get these health difficulties, and she delivers the baby right there. And when she delivers the baby, she is so distraught, she doesn't even want to pay attention to the baby. And the women that are attending to her says, it is a son you need to pay attention to. You need to give him a name. And in her dying words, she says, I'll give him a name, Ichabod. And Ichabod means when the glory departs. And and she says in verse 22, and she said, the glory has departed from Israel 
for the ark of God has been captured. And she died. And she has a son named Ichabod. How would you like to have that name, guys? The glory departed. Hey, you want to invite Ichabod to the party? <laughs> the old glory departed guy? I don't know about that. Man, he can put a damper on anything, isn't he? Ichabod here. Uh-huh. And she named him that because she said the whole nation, the glory has departed because the Ark of the Covenant has been captured. It's about as low as you can get and about as depressing as you can get as you look at chapter, uh, at chapter 4. What this defeat showed is that it wasn't the fact that God didn't manifest himself. The reason they were defeated the very first time and the very second time is that they had really run away from God. And as they had moved away from God, then God was chastening his people because of their moral and ethical failures. I shared a statement with you two weeks ago, Charles Spurgeon. And Charles Spurgeon said that God never allows his people to sin successfully. Their sin will either destroy them or will invite the chastening hand of God. You will never sin successfully. Righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a disgrace to any people. This principle, that sin will destroy you or invite the chastening of God, applies to our nation. Our nation with a growing debt and a growing debauchery. While we destroy the life of the unborn, we provide gender confusion for the unsure, we take away the incentive to work for the unemployed, we provide societal destroying choices for the unmarried, we strip away religious freedom from the unyielding, and we reduce the quality of care for the unhealthy. And all of what we're doing, and the effect of all of this is seen in a sluggish economy, failing schools, failing families, soaring crime rates, exploding sensuality, and a malaise of hopelessness and despair. And if we as a nation continue the direction that we're taking, Ichabod will be written over our nation saying that the glory has departed. But you see, one of the major reasons that this could happen is because this principle of God judging sin applies to the church. If we let sin reign in our church, we will no longer be a light to our community or to the world. Dr. R.G. Lee, some of you that are older, senior adults, heard him and heard him preach. He'd even preached in the pulpit here at Shays Mountain Baptist, famous pastor in, in the mid-1900s. Let me just read a little bit of what he said. He says, a church can change from a church of aggressive conquest into a church of possessive, of a slothful timidity. A church can be a roller of marbles when it should be a remover of mountains. Thus does its spiritual muscle become flabby, its fingers fumbling, its feet halt as the glory departs. A church can put its headlight on the rear and think only of the glory that was. Then and thus does its light grow dim its voice faltering, its spiritual ambitions anemic, its worship lacking in life, and its glory is one of the past. Then can Ichabod be written over its portals, its pews, and its pulpits. Chapter 4. The glory had departed from Israel. And so when you see that, You can read it and feel like, wow, Old Testament, this is tough. We can also see this is happening in our nation. And part of the reason it's happening in our nation is because it's happening in the Christian church today. 
So what is the answer? Is there any hope? Well, I want you to turn to chapter 7. And in chapter 7, you're going to pick up, the, pick up the story. The ark was captured. The Philistines captured the ark. And uh, there's a whole lot more to it. You can read chapters 5 and 6. But everywhere they took the, the ark, there was, uh, uh, there was judgment on the people. So finally they wanted to give it back. And they gave it back to, um, to Israel. And uh, sure enough, it's sitting in a uh, place in chapter 7, uh, Kiriath-Jerim. And that's where the ark of the covenant is, is seated. But then look what it happens. In verse 2, it says, And from the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. When we finish that battle, it's been 20 years. Finally, finally, the people lamented after the Lord. It meant they began to mourn for their sins, and they cried out. We're tired of being separated from God. And that's when they began to cry out. I read that 20 years, 20 years before they got to this point. And I began to ask, how long will we stay in our sin? How long will we hold on to the things that separate us from God? How long will we be captive to a particular state of sin? How long will we sit there and not grow spiritually, professionally, emotionally, relationally, and let there just be this malaise of indifference? How long will this happen? Until we finally wake up and we lament to the Lord. Well, it took 20 years and these people finally did that. And when they did, Samuel seized the opportunity. Verse 3. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and Asherah from among you and direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. He says, are you tired of where you are right now? Are you tired of this situation? Are you tired of this oppression? Are you tired of playing with this religion? Are you ready to get serious about your walk with God? He said, let me tell you what I want you to do. And folks, you can just write these down. It's the same back then. It's the same as today. Number one is return to the Lord. Very first thing he said to them is you need to return to the Lord. That means you acknowledge, you confess, you forsake sinful behavior. You turn away from your sins and you turn to God who can forgive you and restore you. This is not just being sorry for something or having regrets. It means you make plans to stop this painful action that you're doing, ask for forgiveness from God, and say, I'm ready to return to the Lord. And he says, return to the Lord with all your heart, not half-hearted. It's when you get serious and you say, enough's enough. I'm ready to come back, Lord. I want to return to you. He says, you return to the Lord. Second is you remove the foreign gods. Remove the foreign gods. And he says, you put away the foreign gods and the Asheroth that is around you. Asheroth was one of these symbols. It was for, for a fertility goddess. And he says, you need to remove all of those foreign gods. Get rid of all of those substitutes. Those things that were taking the place of God's control in your life, put them aside and use them no more. Take the, what you were doing and just place it aside. Because all you want to do is be satisfied by the Lord and what he provides for you. For you identify those gods and put them aside. And so you just need to identify what it is. And when you put away the foreign gods, you begin to think about the things you've been living with these number of years. For these people, it had been at least 20 years and even longer of things they had been living with. And finally, they said, we've had enough. This is a dead-end street. And so, and so whether it is things that, that you're living with that, um, that are constantly controlling your life, 
And you say, I want to be rid of these things. I'm ready to return to the Lord. I'm ready to remove the foreign gods. I'm ready for there to be a difference in my life. And I'm tired of a life that, that's either tied to sensuality or a life that's tied to gossiping or a life that's, that's tied to lying or a life that's tied to alcohol or tied to drugs or a life that is tied to pornography or a life that's being tied to unethical behaviors, a life that's being tied to me just being greedy and, and, and holding on to everything and not wanting to share with anyone or a life uh, tied to just holding on to the gifts I've got and not wanting to volunteer and to help with other people people, whatever it may be, all these things that you just hold on to that are, are ruling your life and, are, and you're using it as a substitution for the presence and the power and the purposes and the ways of God. And, and, what, and what Samuel's telling the people is you've got to remove the gods. And, and so each one of you, have got to go and do this in order for this to happen. But then the third thing he said is you need to ready your heart. He says, direct your heart to the Lord, ready your heart, prepare your heart, commit your heart. He said, once you've pushed all these things around, get your heart ready to come in that right relationship with God, a determination to remain faithful and loyal to him. And then the fourth thing is reverence him alone, reverence him alone. And he says, and serve him only, reverence him alone. Now here's this distinguishing characteristic of their Israelite religion and of what we serve as Christianity today. And that is, it is God only, it is Jesus only, okay? You can't, it's not, we don't, we don't have a, a syncretism in Christianity to where we can say, well, you can accept this, but let's add something to it. There's some new age stuff out there that sounds pretty good, so let's add it to Scripture. You can't do that. You don't have that option. Serve Him only. And so what he meant by that was don't go back home and say, well, I've got a couple little gods over that I'd like to hold on to. No, no, no. That's not the way it works. He says, serve him only. Reverence him alone. And guess what the result will be? He says, the result is that he will deliver you. He will deliver you. So he lays the word out. The people come to him. Samuel lays it out. So how did the people respond? Look what it says in verse 4. So the people of Israel put away the Baals and the Ashtaroth, and they serve the Lord only. Wow. Well, once they did that, then he says, let's just have a big gathering. Let, let's have a big time where we come together, we fast, we pray, and let it be a time of confession and, and make it a real strong spiritual time. So we're going to go to Mizpah, and it's called the Tell of Mizpah, which that's like there's a hill there, there's a mount there. And everybody, let's come up here and let's have a great service. And so that's what they did in verse 6. So they gathered at Mizpah and they drew water and poured it out before the Lord. And they fasted on that day and they said there, we have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. What that means is this is when Samuel became their judge. He became the prophet, the judge. He was the leader of the people. They all came together. They fasted. They prayed. They confessed sin. It was a powerful, powerful time. It's chapter 7, a little bit different than chapter 4. In chapter 4, when they had a defeat, the people went to the elders and they said, why did this happen? I said, well, we blame God on it. And the whole thing is, if we had just had the Ark of the Covenant, then we would have been okay. And what they wanted to do was they wanted to arouse the anger and the wrath of God by bringing in the Ark of the Covenant and set it up and say, okay, God, you go sick them. 
That was the answer in chapter seven, uh, chapter four. Chapter seven, they lamented over their sins and they came to Samuel and he stepped up and he challenged them to repent and return to the Lord. He didn't talk about the wrath and the power of God. He talked to him, you need to repent. You need to return to the Lord. And what was foremost for the success of Israel was to be right with God. Now listen, more I thought about this, more I believe this is a great truth in this passage. Our natural desire is to live in chapter 4. And that is to arouse the wrath of God against others. But God wants us to live in chapter 7 and return to him. See if this resonates. As Christians, we too often respond to our nation who's going to hell in a handbasket. Like the elders in chapter 4. And people come and say, why is this happening? Where is God? What is he doing? And we get all up in arms and we get, we said, you know what? We want to get aroused, the wrath of God, the power of God. He needs to get in there and he needs to clean house with all these evildoers. If it's evildoers around the world or evildoers in Washington, D.C. or Montgomery or wherever it may be. And we just ask that the wrath of God come and let's just take care of that. Let's punish those evildoers. And I can tell you, I've been guilty of that. Of saying, that's what needs to happen. I'm living in chapter 4. But you know what God wants me to live in? He wants me to live in chapter 7. He says, Danny, the answer is not that. How many elections are we going to have before we say, oh, if just this person gets elected, everything will be fine? No. He says, what you need to do is you need to return to me and you need to repent. And let's get back to the basics with God. And rather than hating on people that are different than me or different beliefs on there and say, well, the wrath of God and the power of God is going to come get them. I think God's called me to chapter 7. And he said, let's get your house clean first. Let's get the church to be what the church needs to be. Let's get the church to come together and to return to the Lord and to repent of their sins and to revere God and to revere him only. And if we reverence him alone, Do you think that's the best start? I thought it made sense, but then also I thought that verse that everyone knows in that 2 Chronicles 7, 14. And we always seem to share this during uh, times of of our nation when we're celebrating uh, the 4th of July's or Memorial Day's or Veterans Day. But look at that verse. Look what it says. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and will heal their land. Now leave that verse up there. What we want is the last four words, will heal their land. See, that's, that's what we're wanting. We're saying, God, heal our land. Come on, you need to heal our land. And the way you're going to heal our land is you got to get this person elected. We got to take out your, ven- your, your vengeance on this person. And that's what we're going to do to heal the land. That's not what, what scripture says. That's at the very, very end. The first thing it says is if my people who are called by my name, that's us as believers that are here in this room, humble themselves, pray, seek my face, turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sin. Oh, and by the way, I will heal their land. I'll heal their land. 
we kind of get in the cart before the horse. It is important who we elect. And I believe we should elect godly people, men and women, that, that would serve this country. I'm all for that. But if we put our total faith into man's elections, we are in big trouble. Our nation is not going to change. Our world is not going to change just because a certain individual gets elected. It is when the body of believers does what we've been called to do. And that's what happened in in 1 Samuel chapter 7. They decided they were going to get it right. And they were going to get right back with with their God. We keep waiting for God to raise up some man or woman to be our deliverer and be the strong person for God. But if you'll read the book of Judges and you read 1 Samuel, it always began with people crying out to God in repentance and then God raised up the man or woman to be the deliverer or the leader. You don't see in the book of Judges where the people are just kind of doing their own thing and someone raises up and says, hey, I'm going to deliver you from the oppression. No, the people cried out to God and then God raised up a deliverer. Samuel, you didn't hear anything. Nobody talked to him in chapter 4. And you don't hear anything from Samuel. Then all of a sudden we get to chapter 7 and the people are lamenting over their sins to to God and they're mourning on their sins. And then Samuel comes on the scene and he says, hey folks, this is what needs to take place. So for us as a nation, if we want to really see things change here, it starts in the house of the Lord. And it starts with us doing exactly what God's word says to do. And once we begin to do this according to God's word, seeking his faith, that's when he forgives our sins and that's when he begins to heal our land. Listen, we live in a dark and cold world and what God wants to do is to see some of us, all of us to get on fire for Christ. And as we get on fire for Christ, we are fire, a fire that burns bright enough so that the world can see us, but yet when they draw close enough, we're warm enough to where that coldness that they have can be warmed up and they can understand who God is and make decisions for Christ. Did you not re- listen to the testimony that was shared this morning young woman who is an atheist what brought her to God she got around other believers and said there was a difference and as she brought around those believers and they were able to share the gospel with her then she made a decision for Christ and her life has been changed for eternity this is what God wants to see us do but also want to let you know that whenever there's repentance and whenever there's revival war will always break out (laughs) there'll always be an attack and this is what happened look at verse 7 It says, now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. Most likely the Philistines had said, there's no no gathering. Y'all can't have public assemblies because it may turn into you getting ready for war. Well, they had a public assembly. It was a church meeting. But when they heard about it, then the Philistines said, we think it's war. We're coming after you. And look at their response in verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us. Hey, there's a change of pronoun. Not it will save us, like the Ark of the Covenant, but that he may save us. You as the man of God, you continue to cry out for us. That he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And so Samuel took a nursing lamb and he offered it as a burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel. And the Lord answered him as Samuel was offering up the burnt offering. This is a quick answer. He's got, we're doing the burnt offering right here. And as they're in the midst of the offering, all of a sudden God speaks up. 
And he says, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were routed before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them down as far as Bethkar. Listen, they didn't even show up for a war. They weren't going to show up for a battle. They just showed up for a religious time to get together and turn their hearts to God. But then the Philistines are coming up here getting ready to attack them. And it says, then God thundered down. What does that mean when God thundered down? Well, some believe it's like thunder. It's like a weather, like a huge thunder. And during that day, people felt that wars were fought on two planes. There was the human plane, which was the terrestrial, and there was the divine plane, which was atmospheric. And they felt that the gods could control the atmosphere. And that when they would kind of cheer for one team over another one, they would cause some things to happen meteorologically that would tend to pull the battle their way. And so while they're getting ready to fight, this huge thunder and all this stuff is coming. All of a sudden, the Philistines look around and say, this is not a good omen. (laughs) This is not good. And it caused them to go into panic. And while the Israelites are up here on this tail, up on this hill, and the Philistines are here, and they're in panic. It opens up their lines, and all of a sudden, here come the Israelites, and they chase them all the way back, and they win the battle. And after they win the battle, Samuel does something in verse 12. And it says, and Samuel took a stone, and he set it up between Mizpah and Shin, and he called his name Ebenezer, for he said, till now, the Lord has helped us. He set up stones, stones of remembrance, a stone that says the Lord has helped us. It's a stone of help. Others had done this. Moses has done this, and Joshua has done this, and Jacob did it before them. But many believe that sometimes when they take these stones up, they may have written an account of the battle. So that anybody that came by would see it, they could read the account of the battle. The stone was set up as a memorial, as a remembrance for what God had done for the people. It was not for the bravery of the people that were fighting. It was for what God had done. Because it was on that day that God thundered and they won the battle. It's that day that God helped us. And he says, this is for all future generations as they come by to say, we won this battle, not because we were the best marksmen or the strongest fighters. We won it because God helped us. And for that generation right there, it was like a benchmark. They just drove it right into the ground and said, it's because God helped us. That's why we won that battle, that stone of remembrance. You know, you think about um, superheroes of the faith, and you say, okay, Samuel's listed in in that group, but he wasn't a fighter. All those other people I've talked about were warriors. He wasn't a fighter. But you know what he was? Was He was a man who was committed to God. And when the time came and there was a need for somebody to step up and to be a voice for the nation, it was Samuel. And he was a hero of the faith because he stepped out where the priest before him would not. And he followed the the words of God and the commands of God. And he was the man that was there for that voice. During this invitation, this is what I want to tell you. Every one of us is called to go to Mizpah 
which is where everybody went to where they had their time of revival. Every one of us is called to do that. To return back to God, to remove the foreign gods, and to reverence him only. Every one of us is called to do that. But I do believe that in this congregation, that there's at least one, maybe more, that God is tapping on the shoulder saying, I want you to be that Samuel. I want you to be that voice. May not be next week, may not be next year, maybe five years from now, I don't know. But I just believe that sitting right here in this worship service today, that God may be placing his hand on one or maybe more that he says, Mizpah, it's great, but I want you to be one of the voices. And you're going to help lead these people, lead this church, lead other believers. to say we've got to follow God and take that strong step of faith and be that superhero of faith. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes. Father, I thank you this day for the things that we can learn from those who've come before us. And I thank you, Father, that um, we're not dependent on our power, not dependent on our skills, not dependent on uh, our abilities, but we depend upon you. And Lord, may we focus on getting right in our relationship with you and then claim the promise that you will heal our land. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.